to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX98.3 FM People Powered Radio. I am your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is entitled Eat the Rich. Eat the rich. It's kind of this resurrected phrase. I didn't realize till this week that it, it, actually its, its origin is from the 18th century, which it's sort of been adopted by a lot of contemporary, I don't want to say sort of far left, I guess just mainstream left, or I guess like anti-capitalist groups um, as a sort of slogan for you know being against capitalism and people having lots of money and, and, and all, all the all of the profound inequality that is a consequence of capitalism. Um, and I think we've kind of hovered around this topic before, but partly because I was actually probably mostly because this has been sort of the subject of a lot of films of late. We did a couple, we did an episode many months ago. Uh, it was kind of the Oscars special where we talked about the concept of the the Roaring Twenty Twenties and this uh, the concept of indulgence and how that's been explored in a lot of films of late. And I think we're probably going to piggyback a little bit on that uh, on that here, but um, we're we're really focusing particularly on films where there's this clear cross over between the rich or the aff- uh, the affluent or the bourgeoisie and this is a phrase bourgeoisie that we will hopefully explore in great detail in today's episode i'm mindful that it means different things in different contexts where um someone who was bourgeois was uh, historically someone who was middle class whereas when marx used it it was more just anyone that owned property uh, sort of anyone above that line um, that, that that had the control controlled the means of production, and then anyone who wasn't bourgeois was was proletarian. There's a clear like dualistic distinction, but bourgeois can generally has like a, a, a I guess in the culture has historically had this sort of meaning of being sort of middle class. But the the the, the fact that there is that fluid definition is actually going to become quite uh, interesting in the films we're going to be talking about. And one in particular, I think, explores that idea really interestingly. Um, and this crossover between sort of the bourgeois or the affluent uh, or the, the, the economically powerful and this motif of consumption, particularly the consuming food, you know, hence eat the rich. And um, I, I think, you know, we could have talked about a lot of films in this category. Um, I mean, you've got films like uh, one of the films we're going to talk about, actually, there's a bit of a crossover. We could have done a, a Stéphane Autran uh a double with our Babette's Feast probably could have fit in this one or The Menu, uh, that recent one with um, with Ray Fiennes in it. Um, but the three films we're going to be talking about are uh, Marc Caro and uh, Jean-Pierre Jeanette's uh, 1991 film Delicatessen. We're then going to talk about The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, of course, uh, directed by Louis Bunuel. Uh, it's our first Bunuel film on this show, I believe. And then we're going to finish off with the new film Assault Burn, directed by Emerald Fennel. Um, but before we get stuck into the films themselves, just in talking about this idea of what it means to be bourgeois and that sort of thing, and this and how it relates to this phrase eating the rich the very eat the rich it's sort of a subversion isn't it because when we talk about the rich we talk about people who are greedy and consume a lot themselves and the idea of eating the rich is a little bit like giving them their own medicine or should i say giving us our own medicine where they do all the eating but now we're going to eat them you think you like eating well we'll show you eating but in sort of talking about it in that sort of subversive way there is this sort of element of where the underclass is embodying the traits of the enemy, is embodying the traits of the proletariat. It's kind of embodying the traits or a trait, a key trait of the bourgeoisie 
in order to defeat it itself. And we've talked a lot in this week about sort of swapping teams for the sake of ends, justifying means and that sort of thing. And I think this week, just keep in mind this idea, this motif of fluidity between and within the bourgeoisie and the non-bourgeoisie or the proletariat, particularly in the modern world where it, it doesn't take much to own some property in this world. We, we don't live in a feudal situation, but, but we also are living in a, a profoundly unequal society as well. And, and the idea that the 21st century is a different time to, just as say, like Karl Marx's time. And the fluidity between these groups, I think, is something that is coming into question a little bit more, and certainly in all these films. But let's get started uh, actually chatting about them to begin with. And the first one we're going to talk about is Delicatessen. Uh, from 1991, directed by Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre Jeunet. So if you haven't seen this one, it's a really, it's a great looking film. It's, it's a really exciting, even if you don't have no idea what's going on, it's just great to look at. Um, it, it's, it's a dystopian science fiction black comedy film. It's, it's set in this apartment that's run by this landlord who's a butcher who serves up human flesh to his inhabitants who pay for it with little corn kernels in this dystopian world. And he hires this new worker to come in and sort of fix up the apartment um, and he'll later be on the menu as the new sort of you know the new meat option for for these inhabitants now you don't have to be super clever to realize that there's clearly um a a a, a, a satirical um and metaphorical and symbolic satirical thing going on here where, where the film is very viscerally conveying the, the grotesqueness of gluttony um firstly through these very obvious symbols but i'm going to talk about more about the, the general look of the film and how it does that so in terms of the the obvious symbolism of the film you know it's it's very clearly depicting that you know the classic tragedy of the commons where a necessity i.e food or shelter is owned or controlled by a particular person and that inevitably allows them to exploit people that absolutely need it for their survival so in this case we've got the butcher landlord who can hold you know this this meat and flesh you know over people's heads and like you know and he kind of exploit them as, as best he can we see scenes of him hoarding his corn in his basement he's very sort of um he's almost like a stereotypical fat cat uh communist uh sorry not communist capitalist in a post-apocalyptic world so it is a very sort of imaginative character but he's familiar at the same time um is sort of an archetypally greedy character um uh, but but I, I think it's also important to point that it's not simply that the inhabitants are uh, of the apartment are exploited, and it's obvious to say that the apartment is this you know this microcosm of a capitalist society or like as a late stage capitalist society, but the people who are literally used for labour. So this guy that shows up for the new job is literally consumed when his capacity for labour labour runs its course, which is to sort of say that that, that capitalism in this sort of dystopian sense. Um, it, it sort of limits or diminishes people down to or distills people down to their absolute use in the labor, you know, as, as units of labor. And once they're done, they're consumed and, and, and used to every sort of every morsel of them is used by the system to continue its growth sort of at their complete and utter expense. And I also think it's really important, even though I'm not going to focus on this too much, but there's some really interesting scenes in which the literal rhythms of this landlord butcher guy resonate throughout the apartment, which with the, and, and this, these sounds and rhythms, literal rhythms, they sort of sweep the inhabitants into this sort of mesmeric or hypnotic tempo, so as to say that they're kind of like inescapably tied to his rhythms. They're inescapably walking to the beat or marching to the beat of his drum. So there is this kind of authoritarian, totalitarian aspect to it as well. So it kind of does have a very kind of Orwellian. It actually reminded me of the the illustrations on the the 
the I used to have this picture book version. I rent, got it from the library, um, rented it from the library, <laughs> um, borrowed from the library, uh, a, 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 like an illustrated version of George Orwell's Animal Farm. And the illustrations on that, particularly because there's like a pig on the poster of this one, I think there's some kind of crossover there. I haven't looked into it, but I'm sure there is. Um, and so they're kind of like inescapably walking or marching to the beat of his drum. And it's probably worth noticing in the, in the particular scene I'm speaking about, he's actually having sex with one of the inhabitants, which is, again, quite symbolic of, you know, his exploitation of them and his dominance and that sort of thing. Um, but before we get sort of too much into this, sort of the greed of this character, I also do want to talk about sort of the, the, the other side of that coin, which is that I think there is a, a symbolism of a kind of quasi-proletariat revolution in this film in, in which if we talk about sort of the interconnectedness of all these uh, inhabitants of this apartment there's a couple of scenes where there's this really kind of nifty kind of steampunky um kind of um acting in concert sort of like you know the good guys of the film kind of having this sort of coordinated mechanical um system that that allows them to kind of overthrow um the the uh you know from below the the overarching the overlord kind of thing so there's a symbol of that kind of you know putting plans into action actually um organizing the proletariat to, to sort of cause this sort of revolution so to speak but i think all that's very plain on the surface of this one I, I really want to speak about the look of this film particularly and how it carries this underlying message of how human beings just have a general um, dis, dis, we don't really like the, the look of greed and gluttony. We, we consider it quite grotesque. So this motif of grotesqueness, um, the whole film sort of has this kind of toxic brown, orangey tint to it, a bit like a gigantic skid mark just been rubbed against the camera lens. Um, and it, it is, as I mentioned before, a bit of that picture book thing, it kind of has that kind of dystopian gothic look that it, like a, if you, ever, if you know the, the, the illustrator, the Australian illustrator, Sean Tan, he actually won an Oscar for, a short film he did uh, many years ago it has that kind of dystopian gothic look to it i think um but there's a kind of wetness as well a kind of swampish grotto-like environment that would you'd imagine there's a festering kind of fung like lots of fungus and bacteria sort of roaming through all the corridors and things and then the, the particular thing i want to point about the, the, you know, the choices in this film and i'm not sure if this necessarily was a choice but it works so well in the film is that the characters while they're hungry they don't look particularly thin and I'm not sure if this was intended, but all of their all the all the actors' eyes are quite bulgy, which really perfectly parallels the really the, the 18 millimeter sort of fish fish. I know fish eye lens, 18 millimeter lenses aren't the same, but that kind of fish eye looking kind of 18 millimeter lens look that the film has, which adds to this overall motif of bulginess of bloatedness in the film. That everything is kind of sort of circular and and bit bulgy, a bit like a gluttonous kind of person sort of looks like. And so, and so the 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 the, the of that is we feel a bit sick looking at greed even if it's not and i think this is make this film makes a good point about like the relativity of being bourgeois the relativity of affluence like this guy isn't really that rich like in terms of like his aggregate wealth but in terms of inequality he's so much more powerful than the inhabitants of this of this apartment and so it gives us this sense that that kind of greed is disgusting. But as we've talked about time and time again on this show, there are limits to satire, which is that, you know, satire is very useful in reminding us that there's a particular sort of rabbit hole or slippery slope that we don't want to fall into. But the weakness of satire is that it has to exaggerate reality in order to make its point, right? It has to simplify its opponents 
and, and, and ultimately straw man them at least to some degree in order to make its point about them. It can't just use reality on its face to make its point. It has to sort of shift and emphasize and, and downplay certain aspects of reality in order to bring out, you know, it has to be dystopian. The guy has to be fat and ugly and, and sweaty and gross, you know, in order to sort of bring out these, these, these broader things. Is there a film then that we can, that is, let's say, equally critical of the bourgeoisie um, without kind of straw manning it too much, um, specifically in this case where we were still talking about the idea of consumption and greed and that sort of thing, but we're not depicting human subjects as these sort of inhuman or inhumane kind of gluttonous, toadish feet, um, creatures sort of thing. Well, before we do that, just to remind you, I'm listening to uh, 2XX uh, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Um, this is Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. And also consider jumping onto our website to subscribe to the station to sponsor the show. All that would be very much appreciated. But moving on now to our second film, Louis Bunuel's uh, very famous 1972 film, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. And despite what I said about the how Delicatessen has this kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's satirical, it's dystopian, it's not, it doesn't have a realist look, and I'm going to sort of look at a film that, that perhaps doesn't sort of straw man its opponents as much. This isn't a realist film by any means. Calling Louis Bunuel uh, like a social realist director would be, uh, sacrilegious in in the in, in the history of in, the film. There's certainly um, surrealist um, elements to the the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, and and, and I, I would say, dare I say, even more so absurdist elements to this film. Um, but I think nonetheless, it's still actually I think it does sort of solve all the problems that we've just raised about delicatessen. But if you have if you're not familiar with the film, essentially it tracks this group of upper middle class, and again I use that word interestingly. Like when we talk about the word bourgeois, again, they're not. Owners of castles, they have champagne and drink cocktails and they're dressed nicely, but they're not, they live in big houses. They're not super rich, right? They're relatable. They look like people we know. Perhaps they look like us, but they're still, they, they, they you know, they're socialites. Um, and they're organizing various meals, none of which they ever fully see out to their end throughout this film. And because they're constantly interrupted and in, in all, all these meals, this series of meals and um, sitting down to, to chat and over, over a coffee or, or, or a meal is interrupted and constantly intertwined with these, all these subplots or interrupting moments of these absurd or surreal situations that kind of jump out of nowhere. And we'll get into what they are specifically in just a second. And if it sounds a bit confusing, that's because the film is quite consu- uh, confusing and sort of throws you off every time the characters sort of sit down. And that's kind of the, the point of the film. And I want to talk about how the film, rather than depicting the bourgeoisie as grotesque, but rather how it evokes this sense of how being affluent, there's a tediousness to it, the, the tedium of being affluent, of being bourgeois in that more classical sense here. So the film, I think, sort of holds up two competing ideas, a very complicated film, but let's try and simplify it down to its basic fundamentals. I think kind of holds up two competing ideas throughout this constant cycle of meal planning and interruptions that, that when blended together, tell a story about what it what being bourgeois really is. So on one hand, we have this idea of this constant sense of progress, this constant sense of unfinished business. So obviously, you know, they're constantly planning meals. There's a lot of talking about eating, talking about consumption, talking about drinking. There's a lot of very tedious scenes about them talking about, you know, what makes a great martini. And it's, it's very pretentious and annoying to watch. And the film is kind of, it's one of those great films where we, if you're bored, the film is working, if that makes sense. Um, but also there's this very sort of conspicuous reoccurring shot of the characters walking down this long country road, but we don't really know where they're going, right? It's, it's somewhat aimless. There's a specific direction, but 
we don't actually know where the destination is and they clearly don't know what it is either. And you could say that this is very symbolic of capitalism or this, this sort of unbridled, unbreaking capitalistic thirst for constant growth. Although the film is, is, I think, more so about social relations, I don't think we can forget about the sort of the economic aspects to capitalism when we talk about a film that's called The Discreet Challenge of the Bourgeoisie, right? It's talking about how capitalism is kind of underpinned or a capitalist society is underpinned by this kind of unbreaking thirst for constant movement, constant ascension. But then on the other hand, because on one hand we have this this sort of unfinished business motif, but on the other hand we have this constant interruption of, of these plans, constant interruption of this, this ongoing thirst for more with what I'm going to call the real. And what I mean by that is it's not necessarily just real life, although that is a big part of it. So a lot of these interruptions relate to sort of political intrigue or um, or, or, or political um, deception or like a, like spies and people sort of, you know, one of the characters is an ambassador for this fictitious country, Miranda, and he's scared, like people are spying on him, trying to shoot him. But we also have moments of existentialism and and, and, and particularly, the, you know, where the guy doesn't remember the lines for his play and there's a, a kind of constant state of paranoia and um, it, it reminds me a little bit of like Barbie when she's like, oh my God, I just thought about death. And that kind of like is a big spanner in the works, like moments of, of, of total... Um, sort of self-conscious anxiety about not being a complete person, not being a fully formed person. There's a great scene where two of the characters, rather than hosting a meal, are sort of distracted by their sexual desires for one another and they don't quite full out live those sexual desires. It's like they know that they're there, but they don't actually live them out. It's almost to say, like, you know, you actually do have a, a, a real sort of human urge inside of you and you know it's there and you, you do sort of yearn for it, but you also ignore it because the meal is more important. And, 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 and you know, there's, there's a lot of films like that. Like, like American Beauty has a, a similar scene with Annette Benning and Kevin Spacey, where they're about to sort of make love, and then there's a fear that there's going to be drinks spilt on the couch. That kind of sense of like, no, 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 you're about to do real life, do real life, enjoy it. And this kind of, oh, well, no, but the concern is, what if we're, you know? And then there's also a scene near the end, which I think is the best scene in the film. What the, the scene in the film I like the most is the the mention of, in this fictitious country of this underpinning uh, problem of um, Nazism, but it's sort of talked about just you know casually in amongst this conversation about the lamb. So. So, so, but, but I don't want to talk about how the, you know the, the, this is the real world, the real world coming in. I, when I talk about the interruptions of the real, what I really mean is the material, the actual, right, substantive moments of real living as opposed to talking, right, doing rather than just speaking, speaking about life, actually living life versus actually speaking about life. So I think in the rub, the, the result of these two competing ideas, one being sort of unfinished business with the interruption of the real, the constant knocking on the door of the real, is that we get this distinct, very distinct sense of frustration with the tediousness, rather than say the gluttony of the bourgeois, but the tediousness of bourgeois culture, sort of akin to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with the great beauty, where it's not so much that you're getting sick of the parties because they're disgusting in that Wolf of Wall Street way, but you're getting sick of them because they're tedious, right? They don't mean anything. They don't do anything, right? It's this frustration with sort of living life through words, through thoughts, living merely through conversation, dialogue, living in the abstract. It reminds me a bit of that, that, um, uh, that, that, that I think I mentioned this on the show before, but that, that, that Alan Watts quote that's doing its rounds on Instagram about, you know, a person who only thinks 
only has thoughts to think about or something like that. But something that's, it's something to that. And we see this run throughout the film, the tediousness of just living in the abstract, just talking about things. So I mentioned before that, you know, the constant talking about drinking rather than actually just drinking and enjoying something. Um, this motif of dreams, right? Li- you know, living in one's head, living in the unconscious, in the imagined realm rather than the real realm. And it's almost like a curse that they can't break. Everything that ever happens to these people is always taking place in a dreamlike, in a cognitive, in an imagined world rather than the actual physical one. And I think, as I mentioned before, that's my, my favorite scene of the film is when when they're talking about this problem of Nazism in this country, made up country Miranda, and it's alongside these questions about how the lamb was cooked. So as to say that, like, like there isn't actually a problem, like, like because it's only spoken about, it's not actually real. And so the film isn't conveying the bourgeois the bourgeoisie so much, I don't think, as this caricaturistic other, right? This thing that we can separate ourselves from and, and, and say, oh, isn't that terrible when other people do that? Rather, I think what this film is really getting at is that those that have the luxury of experiencing the world in the abstract sense or in the abstract realm or mostly in the abstract realm or, or largely in the abstract realm aren't really living a real life and are letting things slide by, letting injustices of the world or letting the real world just pass them by without actually genuinely living. If you think about your own life, I mean, think about this show, for example. We could actually be out in the world doing something, but I'm talking to a microphone and you're listening in headphones or in your car speakers or something like that rather than actually... You know, all these problems that we're talking about, we could actually be doing something, right, as opposed to talking about them. And I see there's an interesting relationship there. But we can fetishize the abstract too much. If you think about your own life, your own social life, how we often, if you want to catch up with someone, we want to do it by sitting down for a coffee or going for a walk um, with a takeaway coffee or sitting down for a meal or something like Very few people actually sort of say, well, you know what we should do with this spare Saturday? How about you and I go clean up the beach? Let's go clean up the forest. Let's go do some volunteering at the soup kitchen. You know, that, that's not, our social lives aren't underpinned by that, that the system at large doesn't feed into that kind of activity. And and I think you might be thinking, well, I actually do do that sort of thing. And I think this era of filmmaking may have had some slight push on the culture about, you know, this call to action. And you see this a lot on sort of internet forums and things, people talking about the idea of actually taking action. It's sort of almost like a Greta Thunberg approach to the world, which is let's stop talking about it, let's actually do something right now. And that, that sense of urgency, I think, is very much underpinned in 21st century culture. Um, hence this sort of the, 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 the visceralness of eating the rich. But this leads us to an interesting place because we've talked about how greed is so grotesque and we know that. And we've talked also now about how, you know, greed often sort of hides itself. It's not something that's that's gross, um, but but really something that's just simply just tedious and everyday and something that we just, we all kind of do a little bit. And we've kind of woken up to that. But is there a film now that kind of talks about how, while we may be aware, very much aware of the inequalities of the world, you know, are we actually fully coming to terms? Even if we are someone that wants to take action, if we do commit ourselves to sort of having a big plan and putting it into action, are we necessarily making the changes? Are we actually eating the rich in the way that we really want to? Well, for our third and final film this week, we're going to talk about Emerald Fennel's new film, Saltburn. And if you haven't seen it yet, I'm not going to give too much away because there's some it's a really interesting film. Um, but very much plays into this sort of get out, ready or not, stencil that a lot of films have sort of used of late where we've got this common outside is the Barry Keegan character who's brought into this sort of very um, affluent 
you know, he's, the, the, you know, the, the new the new kid in town kind of things. So he's sort of sort of um, taken in almost in a very kind of patronizing way by a very affluent friend or peer, and um, that's that's played by uh, Jake. What's his name? Jacob Arodi. Um, I forgot his name. Jacob Arodi, Maliordi, or whatever his name is, the Aussie guy. Um, and he takes him to his big English um, countryside manor where his family. Uh, Jacob Lordy, I should say. Sorry, uh, sorry, Jacob. Um, I know you're a big fan of the show. I'm sorry about that. Um, it takes him to this this big manor, Saltburn, and it's sort of understood that Barry Keegan's character isn't from that same kind of background. But I want to talk about how this film, it, it subverts our idea of what eating the rich really looks like in reality in the 21st century, in 2023. So the film, I think first of all, it's really important to say that the, 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 the film is mature enough not to simply caricature the rich in the same way, in the same extreme way that, say, Delicatessen does, although it does sort of depict them as a little bit stupid. It's not simply a story where the evils of the world are simply the result of one greedy group. Rather, what we see is that those below the affluent do have an appetite for the affluent, right? It's not simply the rich people are the kings and everyone releases beneath them is these peasants that hates them, right? We have to come to terms with the fact that some people who aren't rich do want to be rich and that doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. I think a film like Triangle Sadness would go really well with a film like this and they, they do say different things but I think it works really well together. And I thought about it a lot on my walk home after watching this film. And I think this idea of people who aren't rich actually do want to be rich is, is is pretty clearly conveyed in this motif of literally consuming these rich characters. So I want I won't say that this is the whole film in a nutshell, but there's it's a very sort of sensual or sexual film where the acts of sexuality are very often involve sort of ingesting bits and pieces of the person that that person's making love to, who Barry is making love to, or at least he's ingesting something that that affluent person that he's making love to has had on their body. Or if you've seen the film, you know what I mean. And we also see this next to lots of scenes of them eating meals and, and actually ingesting and consuming things. So there is this concept of motif of consumption, but it's not so much. So we're literally seeing someone from the underclass eating the rich, but they're not doing it in a way which is vengeful or a way to bring about justice. It's from a place of love. And this idea of what is love and what is true love and what is desire in the context of looking up and looking at the affluent is certainly something that this film is, is focusing on. The, the, this almost sort of sense of self-hate or this, this sense of sort of self-discovery in, in understanding ourselves through the things we desire and whether we choose to feel shame about that or pride in that, to, to push ourselves forward in doing that or to resist that temptation to keep pushing upwards, uh, to continue to consume what's above us. But there's a, there's a huge parts of this film that I'm not going to be able to talk about because not everyone is listening to this have seen the film. But I will say this is that here we have this member of the lesser class sort of literally eating the rich, not not in order to bring them down, but to, to embody them. Yet, without giving too much away on this film, the film still cleverly maintains its target on the bourgeoisie. And when I say bourgeoisie here, perhaps I mean it in the most classical sense um, that I have throughout this episode, but let's let's try and tie everything together here. So, at the beginning, we talked about this film. Uh, we talked about the film Delicatessen and this idea that it's kind of incontrovertible that greed and gluttony are grotesque when we think about them from a from the, from the place of the human condition. We don't like seeing a big gluttonous person just you know. We don't like seeing that, but in reality, the undesirability of being a member of the bourgeoisie it's not really in its grossness. You know, when we see someone 
consuming a lot. We don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have a, a, a bad reaction to that. What we kind of, the, 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 if you really want to encourage people to not thirst and you know, yearn for that affluent lifestyle, what you really need to do is emphasize the tediousness of it. The fact that they're not actually living a life. There's a frustration, uh, a sense of frustration and, and a sense of sort of ensuing injustice that comes from that. that the real world will pass you by while you sip um, champagne and, and merely talk about it, rather than sitting at the table actually picking up your cutlery and living life and, and, and gorge on and, and, and feasting on what's actually in front of you in life rather than just simply living in the abstract and removing oneself from the real. But then in accepting both of those realities that are somewhat intention, we have to question if we were to actually eat the rich, if we were to just you know transcend the abstract and, and sort of come down from the abstract, I should say, and live in the real world, what would actually eating the rich, what would it actually look like in reality in 2023, right? And who is actually doing it at the end of the day? Who's the person that's actually eating the rich when we think we're doing that? And how easily are they able to convince us that they aren't who they really are in that act? So let's think about it this way. For, for, you know, power has always presented itself, right, in this glaze of dishonesty whenever it's served up. So perhaps in eating the rich, we should save our appetite until we're absolutely sure who really ought to be on the menu. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema. Thank you so much for tuning in. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Power Radio. Please get in contact with me at uh, contact at jimmybernasconi.com if you had any suggestions for films we should chat about on the show or any feedback whatsoever. Stay tuned for more quality radio content, uh, con- radio content here on 2XX98.3 FM, People Power Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week.